0: Let's talk about selfishness this morning. That should be fun. Yeah, you guys, really uplifting sermon for you guys. No, um, no but really, uh, Mark chapter 12 has some things about selfishness in it. And so I want to talk about this. And as you think about it, you know, as you think about what, what is selfishness? What is the essence of selfishness? Um, is selfishness always bad? Or are there times where selfishness, maybe, maybe selfishness is good sometimes. I don't know. But as we talk about selfishness, I like to start with kids because as we all know, kids are the most selfish human beings out there, aren't they? I've got a two-month-old, little baby Harper, and she is incredibly selfish. It's all about her. But I don't hold that against her, do I? No, she's wonderful. She's a baby. She can't think outside of herself yet. She's only thinking of eating and sleeping. And so, as kids grow up, we expect, though, that some of that will change. We expect that they'll begin to be able to think outside of themselves, think about other people. At least that's what we hope, right? That as you grow up, you'll be able to think of other people. But I want to tell you a story this morning about seven-year-old Ryan. That's me. I, my dad um, and his friend were working on my dad's truck. They were at the house working on the truck, and I came out, and I wanted to help, too, because seven-year-olds can be such great help with auto mechanics, right? And so I was tasked to hold the light, which is a good job for a seven-year-old. So, and it was one of those, and you remember, I don't see them very often anymore. It was one of those, those shop lights with like the metal cage and the hook on it. And, uh, and so I, I was holding the light. I was helping them see what they were working on. But it was cold outside. It was dark. It was cold. I was probably, I think I was wearing shorts, and so my legs started to get cold, and, and I was really feeling uncomfortable. And There came a time where they needed to go into the garage to get a tool out of the garage. And I realized that there was some heat coming off of this light. And if I pointed it at my legs, it would warm my legs up. It was wonderful. And so I I pointed at my legs and I'm warming up. And Then they come back, so I shine the light on the area again. But that, that made it even worse, right? My legs had felt the warm embrace of the light. And now they were even colder than before. So any chance I got, any time they walked away, I would point it at my legs again. Let's try to warm up my legs. Well, one of the times I forgot to put the light back. and It didn't take long for them to figure out that something was wrong. They couldn't see what they were doing. And my dad's friend turns to me and says, Ryan, we don't care about your legs. We're trying to work here. We're trying to see what we're doing. And I was devastated. <sighs> and I was thinking, what? Really? You care more about this stupid truck than my legs? What if I get frostbite and they freeze and fall off? What are you going to be thinking then, huh? Now, luckily, I didn't say any of that out loud. I was just thinking it. But you can't blame me. I'm a millennial, okay? I'm a snowflake. You got to take it easy. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I can say that, but you can't say that. I might get offended. (laughs) What was going on there? In my mind, I was like, this light was my heat source and I needed it more than you needed light. That doesn't make any sense. I was being selfish. Um, I was there with a the job and I wasn't doing my job. And it would have made more sense if I just went inside and got warm and let them do the work on the car. <clears throat> but a lot of times we don't even think of selfishness, we don't even realize it. If it's not being malicious, um, and that's the essence of selfishness is just thinking about yourself, not thinking of other people, not caring about their wants, their needs, but only being focused on my wants and my needs. And we see that attitude displayed in the religious leaders at the time of Jesus. And we see that in Mark chapter 12 and 11. Just they're, they're selfish. They are they're focused on their own power, authority, and wealth. And they will do anything to keep it and to get it. And Jesus has threatened that. Last week we saw how he came into the temple, he drove out the money chamber, he disrupted their religious system, and that system was built to, to provide them with gain, to give them authority and power and wealth, and Jesus disrupted that. He's threatening all of that in them, and so they've got to put a stop to it. So how are they going to stop it? Well, we'll see in Mark chapter 12, what I want to do is I just want to focus on the questions that Jesus has asked and the answers that he gives this morning. And he's being asked these questions because this is an opportunity for the religious leaders to destroy Jesus. They can destroy him by discrediting him among the people or by getting him in trouble with the Roman authorities. And that's their whole goal with these questions. They don't want to know the answer to them. They're just trying to trip Jesus up and get him in trouble, get him out of the way so that they can keep their own power, authority, and wealth. So I'm going to start with question number one. It starts in verse 13 here of chapter 12. They send some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him, some of these religious leaders. And, and it, Mark makes it clear here. They're trying to trap him in, in their talk. The, this is an authentic question. They, they give him some false flattery before they ask him the question halfway through verse 14. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, remember, this is a trick question. But why is it a trick question? It's because either way that Jesus answers this, he'll get in trouble. You see, if he says, yes, you should pay taxes, then the people aren't going to like him anymore. He gets discredited among the people. They don't want a leader that is agreeing with these totalitarian Roman government that is, you know, oppressing them. They don't want that. And so he, he loses the people. But if he says no, he keeps the people, but now they can go tattletale to the Romans and he gets in trouble with them. They can do something about it, either arrest him or even get him killed. There's no good way to answer this question but we see that jesus can still do it oftentimes when jesus is given an answer of either a or b what does he do he picks c and that's what jesus does here first he says bring me a denarius and let me look at it that that popular roman coin of the day it's worth a day's wage and he says this whose image and inscription is this whose image and that word is very important is on this coin They say to him, Caesars. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesars, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. There's two parts to Jesus' answer here. The first one is answering that question of, should you pay taxes to Caesar? And surprisingly, he says, yes. But he says it a little bit differently. Whose image is on that coin? Well, then you know what? Give him back his money. Give to him what belongs to him. And what Jesus is really doing here is saying that this tax isn't as big of a deal as you think it is. This money is not worth as much as you think it is. Give it back to Caesar, that's fine. There's more important things going on here. And we see that with the second part of his answer. And give to God the things that are God's. Well, I want you to think about this for a moment. If what belongs to Caesar is whatever has his image on it, then how do we know what belongs to God? Well, it would be whatever has his image on it, right? So is, that, is there statues or idols or something that have God's image on it that we're supposed to give to him? No. What has God's image on it? We do. You do. Genesis 1.27 tells us that he made us in the image of God. What are the implications of that then? We owe our whole selves to him. Give to God what belongs to God. We are made in the image of God, so we owe God our whole selves. This isn't a foreign concept in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In Luke 9, Jesus tells his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. They knew what that meant. What does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? In Luke 14, Jesus says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's a strong statement. Whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The cost of following Jesus is everything. We owe him our whole selves. So we see the answer to Jesus's, to, to, to this question, the answer that Jesus gives. And this is really important. Because even though these are trick questions, what we're going to find as we read throughout this that the answers are gold. The answers tell us something about how we are supposed to live. We owe everything. We owe our whole selves to God. All right, let's move to question number two. They're playing tag team against Jesus here. The Pharisees and the Rhodians take a step back, and the Sadducees come forward to try to trip Jesus up with another question. But before we get to their scenario that they bring up, there's a couple things you need to know about the Sadducees. The first, and Mark tells us here. The first is that they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in life after death. Now that's really confusing to hear about religious leaders, people who believe the Bible's true, who read the Bible, and yet they don't believe in life after death and the resurrection. And and part of that is because we are so saturated in our church culture with talking about going to heaven when you die, with life after death. And there's a lot in the New Testament about that. But here's the other part you need to know about the Sadducees. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy, those were the only books that they hold to be the word of God, to be authoritative. Now, if you were to go home and read Genesis through Deuteronomy, you're not going to find a whole lot about the resurrection in there. Almost nothing you will find about life after death. And so, as much as we disagree with them, you can understand how they came to that conclusion if they're only reading those first five books of the Bible. So that's, that's understanding them a little bit. They bring this scenario to Jesus. In verse 19, they say this, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up an offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So they give this scenario, but they set it up with this Levitical law. We don't practice this today, but it, but it was practiced back then. It's this idea, you get two people get married, husband and wife, and the husband dies before the wife has any children. It's the responsibility of his brother to then take her as a wife and to raise up a son, raise up an offspring in the name of his brother. We would be uncomfortable with that today, but that was a normal thing back then. So they're, they're giving this scenario with that premise. You understand that, okay, now here's the scenario. And it's a ridiculous scenario, isn't it? Um, You know, she marries the man, he dies, and he's got seven brothers, and she makes her way through all seven of the brothers before finally they all die. And then they bring up this question. Who's, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? But that's not my question. My question is, why has this woman not been arrested yet? (laughs) I mean, this sounds like the premise to one of those murder mystery podcasts, you know? Like, welcome to episode one of Black Widow. Un- uncovering the truth about one woman, her seven husbands, and their mysterious death. Is it misfortune or murder? You would listen to that, wouldn't you? <laughs> no, but that's the thing. It's, it's, a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous scenario. It's not meant to be real life. It's meant to take it to the extreme. It's, it's like this. Maybe you've, maybe you've gotten this question before. Somebody finds out that you believe in God and they go, oh, you believe in God, huh? Well, answer me this. Can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? Huh, gotcha. And what do you do in that situation? Like, oh, wow, I guess you're right. I guess I don't believe in God anymore. <laughs> of course not. It's, it's a silly question. It's just meant to trick you. It's it's not a legitimate question. That's the whole thing going on here, is that this is is ridiculous. And yet Jesus still answers him. Jesus doesn't say, oh, your question is ridiculous, I'm not going to answer it. No, he gives us a wonderful answer here. So what does he say? Verse 24. Is this not the reason that you are wrong? He's not holding anything back. You're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You guys are wrong for two reasons, because you don't know the power of God and you don't know the scriptures. And so he starts out here talking about God's power, especially in relation to this scenario that would somehow trip God up to the point where he couldn't have a resurrection because he wouldn't know what to do in this situation. He says this, verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. There's a very simple answer to this problem. Nobody's married in heaven. God doesn't have to figure out which husband she'll be because nobody's married. Very simple answer. Jesus could have stopped there, but he keeps going. Because he wants to address the root issue of their thinking. He says, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What is he doing here? This is really important. Where does he go? Well, he says the book of Moses to the passage about the bush because they didn't have chapters and verses like we do today. But he could have said in Exodus chapter 3, where does he go to prove them wrong? He goes to their scriptures. There's so many other places in the prophets he could have gone to to prove them wrong, but they don't hold those authoritative. They don't believe in those scriptures. He goes to their own scriptures and he says, this is why you're wrong. Because God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is hope for a, res, for a resurrection. And when you think about this, think about people that don't have any hope in the resurrection, that don't have any hope in life after death. How would you live if you had no expectation, no hope of life after death? You would want to do everything you can to get the most out of this life. You would want as much power and authority and wealth as you could get now, because this is it. You better live it up now. And maybe we see some of that reflected in the Sadducees. Their focus is on getting as much power and authority as they can now because they don't believe that anything comes after this. And yet, that's not true. We have a hope for the future. We have a hope in life after death. We have a hope in the resurrection. And our hope is in Jesus and in his resurrection, that one day we will be with him again, that we will be raised from the dead with him. We have a hope in the resurrection. That's question number two. Now we come to question number three. This one is set up a little bit different. The other two are are set up by the, it's a group of people, group of religious leaders that come. But now we have one scribe that comes up to Jesus and he hears them disputing. I'd like to think, as you hear about this, as you think about this, I imagine that this man, he's heard Jesus answer well. He's seen the wisdom that Jesus has, and so he's actually genuinely coming to Jesus, asking this question, wanting to know Jesus' answer, not just trying to trip him up. And so he brings this question before Jesus. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, this was, a, this was a classic question of the day. Lots of people ask this question. There's different ancient writings where you can find different rabbis' perspectives on this. Which is the most important commandment all of all? But it's more than just most important. It's actually, how could you summarize all of the law into one thing? What is the main idea behind the law? What's the one big thing going on? That's the question that he's asking. And so Jesus responds. He says, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than than these, Jesus has is kind of two parts to his response. The first one, it's nothing revolutionary. Um, he's taking this from the Shema, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is something that faithful Israelites said every morning when they woke up and every night before they went to bed. This is what they taught their children, what they, they put on the doorpost of their house. This was a main part of their life. And so it makes sense that he would say this. You're going to summarize all the law you do it with this, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then Jesus adds another one from a totally different place. From Leviticus chapter 19, he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Not only are these the two most important commandments, but if you were to summarize all 613 laws of the Torah, you could summarize it in these two things, love God and love people. There's actually a fun activity you could do, especially if you have kids. You should go home today and you should do this with your kids. Go Open up to Exodus chapter 20, to the Ten Commandments there. And walk through each of the Ten Commandments and ask yourself, does this fit in one of those two categories? Either a way to love God or a way to love people. And see if you can fit all of those Ten Commandments in one of those two categories. I won't make you do it with all 613 laws, okay? But doing it with the, main, with the Big Ten is, is, a, is a fun exercise to do. Love God and love people, and the scribe's response is great. Uh, he he agrees with Jesus. He repeats back what he says, and he even says, "This is better than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices." This scribe is different. He's been reading his Bible. He's been understanding it. He's quoting Psalm forty right there, and he he gets it. He's not going to have very many friends left in uh, that religious leaders group anymore. And Jesus recognizes that he gets it. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In the midst of these questions, we see the corrupt nature of the religious leaders. For the most part, they're asking questions not because they want to know, but because they're trying to trip people up. They're trying to trip Jesus up. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to destroy him. They're trying to get rid of him. But in the midst of bad questions, we get really great answers that tell us something of how to live. They're trying to question Jesus' authority throughout this whole chapter. And yet, it doesn't work because Jesus' authority doesn't come from man, it comes from God. These three answers to the question form one main idea that tell us something of how to live. But before I want to get to that, I want to show you two different types of people. Mark ends the chapter here looking at a contrast between two different types of people. The first is the scribes. In verse 38, he says this, And in his teaching, he said, Beware the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues, and have the places of honor at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. What does this tell us about these religious leaders? It's all about them. They wear long robes. They want the best seat at the feasts. For a pretense, they make long prayers. They pray for a long time just so you think they're holier than you. This is all about making themselves look great. They care about themselves. They don't care about others. And we've seen that all along through this. And Jesus is making it very clear. They're selfish. It's all about them. This whole system that they've built in the temple is to support them, is to make them great. Not because they care about others. But then we see a contrast set up. And Mark puts these things right next to each other for a reason. That There's a contrast between that and the next section. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live in, live on. Now, there's some uh, there's some controversy about what exactly Jesus is saying about this widow here, but I think what's clear is we have a contrast between these selfish religious leaders. And this woman who gives absolutely every last penny that she has to God. And we don't know exactly why she does it. But there seems to be, there seems to be an understanding throughout the, throughout the passage that she's doing this out of devotion to God, out of love for God. And that's in contrast to the scribes who care about themselves. What this whole chapter is about, what do we see with the answers to these three questions? Number one, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Our answer is, we owe our whole selves to God. Question number two, is there a resurrection? Yeah, we have a hope for the resurrection. In fact, that's why we can give our whole selves to God is because we have a hope for the future, because we have a hope for the resurrection. But How do we give our whole selves to God? Well, question number three, by loving God and loving people. So I would actually put it this way, because we have a hope for the future, because we have a hope in the resurrection, we owe our whole selves to God, and we give ourselves to God by loving God and by loving people. That's what this is all about, and this is, that is what being a follower of Jesus is all about. But we need to get to application, because what does that mean? What does it mean to love God and to love people? What does it mean to give yourself to God? And so I want to give you some very practical application here this morning. The first connects to that giving your whole self to God and there could be a misunderstanding here because as you read that and then you read the example of the of the widow giving every last cent that she have you could you could draw that okay if I'm supposed to give my whole self to God which includes my finances that includes my money that I need to give all my money to God which is true and yet how do you do that does that mean that then you should give every last cent that you have to your local religious institution like she did Uh, I don't know about that. Is there other ways that we can give our money to God? I think there is. Here's a practical way that you could do that this week. Pull up your monthly budget. Now that's assuming you have a monthly budget. Here's just a life tip here. Budgets are good. (laughs) Dave Ramsey told me to say that. So, No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Really though, whether you're rich or you're poor, having a monthly budget is a very helpful tool. Partially because you can then go through each line and ask yourself, am I honoring God with the way I'm spending this money? Is this giving glory to God the way that I'm spending my money? And there's a lot of room here. Because you come to your, for instance, your rent or your mortgage payment, and you go, well, I just don't know how that would be glorifying to God. So I'm going to stop paying my rent or stop paying my mortgage. I mean, you take that far enough, what's the end result in that? You end up being homeless. And the problem with that is that When you're homeless, you're so focused, every day of your life, you're so focused on on two things, on shelter and food. That takes up a majority of your time to be able to find, find a place to sleep that night and to be able to have food. And that doesn't leave a lot of time to give yourself to others, to help others out, to love other people, to give glory to God. And so does continuing to pay your mortgage or your rent glorify God? Absolutely, because it frees you up from those burdens and gives you an opportunity to love others. But it also gives you the opportunity to invite people into your home. Whether it's hosting a small group or showing hospitality by inviting neighbors or coworkers, people that don't know Jesus into your home and showing them the love of Jesus. You can glorify God by paying your rent and your mortgage, but work through that that budget and ask yourself that question. Is this glorifying to God? Me me spending my money this way? But there's other ways, right? As we look at the, you know, how do we give our whole selves to God? We love God and we love people. And this is something I've thought a lot about. Because you can tell people to do that, and that sounds good, but what does it actually mean to do that? As I've talked about before, uh, my, in my, my family, we, um, our McKinney mission is love God and love people. We, we stole that from the Bible, that's okay. <laughs> and so I've had to talk to my kids a lot about this and come up with practical ways how do we actually love God? How do we actually love people? And I would say that loving God starts with reading his word and praying. It has to start there. Because if we're going to know, if we're going to love God, we need to know God. And if we're going to, in order to know God, we need to be reading his word. This is how he has revealed himself to us. So if you're going to know him, if you're going to love him, it starts with reading your Bible every day. And I quit pulling my punches on this topic a long time ago. Okay, because I am convinced that every single Christian, every single follower of Jesus should be reading God's word every single day. This is, this is life. The word of God, how he has revealed himself to us. This is one of the most important things in your life. We should be reading our Bible every day. And we should be praying. Praising God, confessing our sins, asking for help from God, praying for others. These are two important ways that we begin to love God. There's lots of ways to love God, but it starts with those two things reading God's word and praying. That's how we love God. How do we love people, though? For this one, I I want to invite Brad Williams to come on up and share a little bit, uh, share a testimony about some stuff that has happened to him over the last couple months and some ways that he's been on the receiving end of people loving him. And this gives us a great example. Of, uh, of how to love other people. So thank you, Brad. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, uh, thanks Church Body, for giving me an
1: opportunity to share what uh, God is doing in my life. So about two months ago, a little over two months ago, I was on a uh, cycling trek with a good friend of mine. Many of you know Neil Schilling. We were on our way back from Multnomah Falls, and uh, I hit a big uh, uh, hole in the road and uh, flipped over the top of my bike and uh, landed headfirst on the pavement and bounced a few times in the middle of the road. Um, I was passed out, not breathing. And uh, my dear friend Neil uh, was behind me. He's usually in front of me, but he was behind me this, this instant. Uh, he pulled me from the side of the road, laid me flat, and I uh, started breathing again. And the uh, truck was right behind us. The truck did stop. Thank God for that. Uh, and uh, asked if he could do anything, and Neil asked him to call 911. And uh, by the way, I have no recollection of this whatsoever. Uh, I don't remember any of that, but Neil uh, shared that with me. And um, the first thing I remember is um, being at uh, Legacy Emanuel Trauma Ward, and um, soon found out that I had a concussion, I had um, optic nerve damage, I had about a dozen broken bones, uh, my head, my shoulder, collarbone, um, my ribs, and my hips. Um, I was pretty bad. Um, And anyway, I didn't didn't, didn't actually know any of this until a, a little bit later, um, but I do remember going back and list, uh, watching the uh, video, of or not the video, the live stream, uh, recorded live stream, and I remember uh, Pastor Bob asked for prayer for me that, that, next, that next day, and our body rallied around that, and I am the personal recipient of that. Um, um, both, um, well, many of you, Um, Our small group, um, our Sunday school class, um, discipleship groups, all prayed but also helped, brought us meals, um, helped transform our home so it would handle a wheelchair. um, And others came and did uh, practical jobs that I wasn't physically able to do for the last two months. And that was hard for me, too, um, because I, 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 I... pride myself on being self-sufficient. And that's not what the Bible actually says, but that's what I am. As a, as a red-blooded American, I've, I, I, uh, I do that. And God was working through me on that, too, because my wife had to remind me, It's like, can't God bless others through your injuries? And it's like, yes, he can. And um, so to date, two months later, um, I am, I would say, about 90% recovered I uh, started work this past week, um, I went for a little jog even, and most importantly, I could raise my hand in prayer and praise to our Savior, so thank you for joining me in, uh, in this celebration.
0: That is such a great example of how we can love other people, and, and one of the things that, that I wasn't even thinking about that he brought up was prayer. The fact that so many of us prayed for him, for the, for the family, and the fact that he's so healed after only two months is a miracle, but so often when we go to prayer, we're thinking of God help me with this, you know, we've got our laundry list of prayers for ourselves, and yet how can we reach out and care for others by praying for them? We love others through that, through prayer, but also through giving of our time, our energy, and our resources, and that's what all of, those, all of you that came and helped out Brad and Kathy and their family, um, you were all a part of that. You had an opportunity to love them by giving of yourself. This was not the way of those corrupt religious leaders at the time. Their whole focus was, how can I get more for myself? And yet, that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus shows us a different way. And he shows it most through his death on the cross and his resurrection. Through giving of himself completely and totally for our sake, making a way so that we could have a relationship with him, that we could know him, that we could have a hope for the future. And it's only because of that that we have a hope for the future. And because of that hope, we can give our whole selves to God. And we do that by loving God and by loving people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for your sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. And Lord, um, I pray that we would understand that this week, that we would recognize that, and that would cause us to be able to live differently, to live the way that Jesus has called us to live. Because we have a hope for the future, Lord, that we can give our whole selves to you by loving you and by loving other people. And I pray that you would make that real in our lives. I pray that you would help us to see what that means, the implications of everyday life with this truth. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to love you and to love others because we can't do it on our own. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. And thank you for all that you have done for us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.